1: That's A L L B I R D S dot com, code super 24.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine, so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability. To create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome
3: to the New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Reagan Gillum. Today we're talking with celebrity with we're talking about celebrity media production with Dr. Vanessa Diaz, who wrote Manufacturing Celebrity, Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood, published by Duke University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, be in conversation with you today, Reagan. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this.
3: Um, so just to begin uh, the podcast, uh, I wanted to just begin with a question about how you came um, to write this book. Um, the book is an ethnography of celebrity media production in Los Angeles. And um, I wondered if you could share with us anything about your background, um, like what drew you to anthropology, or what put you um, on the path to writing this book that we're going to talk about today?
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot to say, because there's many different sort of paths that contributed to uh, to getting me to this book. But Um, You know, before anthropology, um, I, you know, before I even was thinking about studying anthropology, I had a relationship to journalism, you know, from the time I was in middle school. You know, I was my middle school advice columnist for the newspaper. In my high school, I was a photographer and a reporter. I worked for the local paper. Um, I, you know, started doing um, internships with, you know, radio stations and all different kinds of media from the time I was quite young. And so um, the background in journalism, I think, really contributed to this sort of organic feeling of ethnographic practice for me. Um, I actually found out while I was in undergrad doing research, um, my earlier research, which was on um, Cuban hip hop, that I was doing ethnography and I didn't know it. I had advisors telling me, you know, this is ethnographic, This what you're doing is ethnography. If you think about grad school, you should really think about going into anthropology because of the kind of work that you're doing. So it was a really organic experience for me, and my interest in the topic, specifically, you know, in, in the topic that that the book focuses on, really started to take shape um, when I started my internship in the New York Bureau of People Magazine uh, back in 2004. So that was, you know, another really important journalistic experience for me. And I immediately started to take note of the gender and racial inequalities I saw on the red carpet, in the offices of the magazine. And then it was when I moved back to um, Los Angeles and continued doing celebrity reporting uh, here that I noticed even more complex dynamics and started to notice the shift in the demographics of, of paparazzi to mostly Latino men, which I know we'll talk more about. And once I was in the anthropology PhD program, I ultimately decided to pursue research um, on this in hopes of writing the book that we're discussing today. And I think, you know, with anthropology, if we think about it as the study of the everyday, I think there are few things more everyday in the US than our exposure to media and the celebrities in media. So for someone like me who worked in celebrity media I also realized that most people don't get to see what I saw. Most people didn't have the access to the spaces that I did. They couldn't see all of these different perspectives. And so, um, you know, anthropologists often want to study things that require access that sometimes in a realm like Hollywood you just can't get. And I, I had the access and I thought, this is really important. You know, this is not just Oscars so white this is not just me too but all of these varying levels of inequalities and issues around race and gender and class that pervade the whole system and this can really be easy to ignore because we don't see the back workings of this in the magazines or on screen you know everything hollywood presents is this fabrication it's it's like a show even reality television so what's the real deal you know of this celebrity making and that's that's what i'm interested in and so i felt like i had to take advantage of my unique background and position in both journalism and my anthropological training so that I could offer this this particular story
3: mm-hmm Thank you.
0: And so um,
3: you tell us about um, like the kind of the real deal of Hollywood. Um, And so I wanted to begin with this concept that you offer us in the book um, to conceptualize what you're um, what you're looking at, which is the Hollywood industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And you focus specifically in the book on um, paparazzi um, who are you know photographers who take pictures of celebrities and and then you also focus on celebrity reporters who tend to predom- be predominantly women um, and so can you tell us about this Hollywood industrial complex and how these roles that you focus on fit within uh, fit within that
0: concept absolutely yeah thank you this is this this is one of the sort of key key concepts that I work through in the book and. You know, in in Eisenhower's nineteen sixty-one farewell speech, he, he warned of the the now very commonly critiqued military industrial complex, right? That which is the conglomeration of military and defense industries that promotes war basically to sustain itself. And I use the Hollywood industrial complex in a similar fashion because it exists to sustain itself in this in this parallel way, with the celebrity system as its driving force. So celebrity personas are constantly created and promoted in order to stimulate consumption of Hollywood media and vice versa. And so the Hollywood industrial complex, I think what it does is it underscores the systemic nature of the industry. It underscores the ways in which it is a machine. There is a manufacturing that needs to be acknowledged. Um, It also underscores this really long, profound relationship to the state and state institutions that Hollywood Has always had. And I think, you know, Hollywood likes to imagine itself as this liberal space, but you only have to look at its history from the Hollywood production code to, you know, recent attempts by the Academy to alter in very minor ways the requirements for best picture for the Oscars. And you see the reaction from white Hollywood. Hollywood is reactionary and it always has been. Um, And the nature of its um, sort of it's, it's really, for me, aptly expressed through this concept of it as an industrial complex because I think like you know the prison or military industrial complex that many people know about, there are certain people who are rendered disposable on different levels. Those who are actually doing what tends to be conceptualized as the lower level work. So the people who I'm focusing on – um, are those individuals. So this concept of the Hollywood industrial complex helps to illuminate these structural hierarchies that, that ultimately shape the lives, the work, the assault, and even in some cases, the deaths of the people who I work with. So like for Chris Guerra, the paparazzo who was killed on the job, who I opened you know, open the book with the story of him, this conceptualization helps frame the racialization of the labor in which he participated that rendered him disposable, and, the, and the, the ways that his death was treated. And even though it was different circumstances and intersectional realities and identities, you know Natasha Stoinoff is the other story that I talk about at the very beginning of the book and she's the reporter who was assaulted by Trump and her own level of abuse and erasure and sort of different degrees of disposability I think can be clarified and highlighted. Because we need this structural framework to help us make sense of the very systemic nature of these politics, and so for me, that's the Hollywood industrial complex, and that's how these individuals who I write about figure into this this broader system that needs to be outlined.
3: Mm-hmm. And so, um, in focusing on the paparazzi and the celebrity reporters, um, your book, you know, really focuses on labor and and work, um, and that's you know that's how I read the. You know, the book um, and, and the work of creating images and stories and like the work of creating celebrity. Um, and you really do a great job. You take us into the daily work of the paparazzi and the reporters on the red carpet. Um, you almost make us feel like we're there. And um, so I wondered if you could just tell us about this daily work. And then as I was reading it, I, see, I noticed that there was a lot of waiting in this work. Um, and I wondered if that implied like a hierarchy between media workers and, and celebrities as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to the last the last point you made, of, of course, there are sort of degrees of collaboration between the media producers themselves and the celebrities and, you know, the celebrities camps consisting of, you know, publicists, and managers, et cetera. But ultimately, it's a work that's in the service of celebrities. So that's, you know, why we see people getting abused in these positions or assaulted or even killed. And even in those moments, the praise and concern remains on the celebrities because ultimately, you know, you pointed out this hierarchy, it's about the service of celebrities. So this is part of why it can get so tiresome to hear celebrities complain about paparazzi or the press when this whole system was created to promote them and their brand. And this this is sort of shifting topics a little but but often much of the celebrity performance of or irritation of or hatred towards the press and paparazzi in particular is actually fictionalized and strategic. It's about gaining further empathy and furthering this sort of celebrity persona and brand, um, so there certainly is a lot of waiting, and it certainly is reflective of the hierarchy because ultimately these media producers are working in the service of and are at the sort of mercy of the celebrities. And in fact, if you if you think about you know the the work of paparazzi, I know a lot of people you know the 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 common theme is that you know paparazzi are aggressive in your face, you know, this is the kind of stereotype of paparazzi. But from my experience, a lot of it is actually quite um, calm and, and very regular in the sense that um, paparazzi will often, you know, if they're in a situation where they have to be close to a celebrity, which is not the goal, they will ask or engage, um, you know, in conversation. These are people who work in this realm every day. And so I think it's hard from the outside to understand that like people on the red carpet see the same celebrities all the time. People who are paparazzi see the same celebrities all the time. They tend to focus on the same individual celebrities for extended periods of time. When I was a red carpet reporter... There were times where I saw, I mean, I'm thinking at like <laughs> the peak of sort of Paris Hilton's fame when I was reporting, there were weeks where I saw Paris Hilton more than I saw any of my own friends or family. So there, there, is, there are heart hierarchies, but there are also are real relationships. And we're talking about real people. When we think about the laborers who I'm writing about, they're real people they have real feelings, they have real experiences, they have real engagements with these celebrities who we view as larger than life. And so I think it's hard to imagine when we have these celebrities that we put on a pedestal that, you know, there's people like me who are actually interacting with them in a regular way on a and on a regular basis to continue to build their brand.
3: Mm-hmm. And you tell um you know this shift um in the book where the paparazzi um, seem to go from, I guess, predominantly white men to predominantly Latino. And, um, and with this shift comes a shift in the criticism of the paparazzi. Um, and so can you describe this, uh, this shift and then this uh, the criticism that came along with this demographic change?
0: Absolutely. Sure. So yeah, basically between 2002 and 2008, it's the, the the bulk of the transition happens between 2002 and 2005, but it continues sort of to, through 2008, where right you see the shift from from predominantly white men, and that includes interestingly, you know, Western European immigrants. There were a lot of um, French and British and other and other uh, Western white European folks who were here as paparazzi, and that wasn't seen as a problem it was the the transition from that to mostly Latinos in that period that was a problem. When I say Latinos, I mean both US-born Latinos and both documented and undocumented uh, migrants from Latin America. So the demographic shift in, in LA has been sort of alluded to in media throughout this time um, and even to this day, but it really hasn't been thoroughly investigated or analyzed. And so I started to notice this and I saw it commented upon in media, but I noticed there wasn't really anything more said about it. And this shift coincided with the expansion of the celebrity magazine industry as a whole. and that created this increased demand for paparazzi photos and so this sudden increased demand for for labor. Um, and so basically, you know, the magazine ex- the magazine expansion started alongside this transition, because People Magazine had existed without any direct competition in the US from 1974 when it launched all the way until 2000. In 2000, Us Magazine, which had existed as a more trade-focused bimonthly and then monthly publication, and it started in 1977, they relaunched in 2000 as a weekly. And then in 2002, we see this new wave of magazines between 2002 and 2005. You have In Touch, you have Life and Style, you have the tabloid newspaper Star relaunched as a weekly magazine. You have the British magazine OK creating the U.S. version. And so, you know, while the branding and reputation of these magazines vary somewhat, they all share the common focus on celebrity and and, and that particular kind of content and glossy image, heavy aesthetic. And so they needed more images. And so these Latino laborers, you know, came from, from varying um, sort of migrant networks, but starting – With some of the photo agencies hiring people who were, for example, valet workers at the high end restaurants frequented by celebrities. And they said, you know, here's a camera. If Britney Spears comes to this restaurant, can you take a picture? And they started getting good pictures. And then through the savvy of of immigrant networks and Um, you know, a lot of the paparazzi who work together are cousins or brothers or, you know, their family. Um, there's people who migrated here specifically for paparazzi work during that period. So, um, but one, one point that I want to make, and this is important to clarify just because, you know, this often comes up that, well, even before this transition to predominantly Latino men, that paparazzi were always sort of demonized and critiqued because the term evolved from, you know, the character paparazzo from the um, 1960 film La Dolce Vita, and, and paparazzo was this annoying photographer. So the idea of this like annoying, pesky photographer has always been the conceptualization of paparazzi. However, the way that paparazzi work has come to be racialized and for paparazzi to be criminalized in particular ways through through really targeted anti-paparazzi legislation um, and through the racialized language being used to describe them by celebrities in the industry alike, calling them, you know, things like thugs and gangs and, you know, these large aggressive men, that this is the sort of language that's used and these expressions of fear around them, that is different. That is something that grew with the shift of the demographics, Um so I think that even if there's a history of, of irritation with the paparazzi, the really particular sort of racialized nature of their treatment now has everything to do with that demographic shift.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you, you touched on this um, previously where you talked about the relationship between celebrities and the uh, paparazzi where they're trying to like build empathy. But um, I wanted to see if you wanted to expand on that because... Because there is this, you know, central contradiction. Um, I think that probably many people might notice who, uh, you know, look at celebrity media where there's this disdain for the paparazzi, but then they're also critical to the creation of celebrity. They're the ones who you said are taking the pictures who we all then, uh, you know, delight in when we open up these magazines. Um, and so what, how, how do you conceptualize that, that contradiction um, between that disdain, but also they're ab- being absolutely critical?
0: Yeah. You know, there's so many, it's, it's a really important question and there's a lot of different layers. Um, w- you know, one thing that just comes to mind and I'll, I'll, you know, more directly respond to the question, but I just thinking about this contradiction, it kind of gets illuminated in, in, in this very particular instance. You know, I mentioned Chris Guerra, who I opened the book with, who was killed on the job. And some of the last photos he took were actually of Jennifer Garner and her child. And Jennifer Garner is one of the people who is sort of the most outspoken about paparazzi work. In fact, just a few days ago, she came out with an article saying, you know, basically talking about how the paparazzi have traumatized her children. And yet, you know, not, not long before he was killed, Chris was, you know, assigned to cover her and she was grocery shopping and Chris, you know, very politely asked her in, in the parking lot, you know, is it okay if I take a few pictures? And she said, yeah, yeah, I just don't want the baby to see you, but go ahead and take the pictures. So he went and very discreetly as paparazzi try to do, right, that's their goal is to, you know, have candid shots. He took these beautiful pictures of her shopping with her then, you know, infant son at the grocery store and, and these pictures sold like crazy. And, you know, they were they were beautiful. And, and Chris dies, right? Chris gets killed on the job working as a paparazzo. And yet those images of Jennifer Garner still sell, still circulate, still promote her brand, even in his death. And so I think that this is a, an important moment to sort of sit with and think about what that means for someone like Jennifer Garner, who is rich and famous and has endorsements and all of these things to spend so much time and energy critiquing these people promoting anti-paparazzi legislation that doesn't change the corporate actual structure. It just targets their labor when she, in fact, has collaborated with them and okayed their work at different points and still benefits from the work that they do, even in the case of someone like Chris who gets killed on the job. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this, you know, I say something to the effect of, you know, a central component is understanding how the politics of visibility and invisibility affect these media producers and are critical to the maintenance of the celebrity system. And so, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I think that the, the, the politics of visibility and invisibility, it's a lot of it is really performance. It's performative, it's strategic. And the presence of the paparazzi following a celebrity shows that they're famous. It indicates their importance. So it's strategic to perform the irritation with that because it makes the celebrities more likable and more real, right? Nobody wants to follow a celebrity who's like, oh, yeah, paparazzi, you know, call me, just come shoot me whenever you want. That is what some people like Kim Kardashian, the Kardashians used to do that earlier on before they were considered more A-list celebrities sort of earlier on in their careers – they were, you know, calling paparazzi all the time. We're here, we're there, come shoot me here. And they didn't have the same sort of cultural capital that the more mainstream sort of Hollywood movie stars that were considered A-list had. But now that the Kardashians have become more famous, they perform that same irritation, even though it used to be that like they were begging for photographers to come shoot them. And so... You know, I think about this this strategic kind of performance and, you know, throughout the the pandemic we've seen things like I don't know if you saw the video for the I take responsibility campaign where you have all these white actors saying they take responsibility for racism and yet some of those celebrities like Kristen Bell have done really serious work on anti-paparazzi legislation targeting these Latino laborers who are at the bottom of this celebrity media food chain. And again, this legislation that just targets their work and them as individuals doesn't target the sort of corporate media practices. And, and there are vulnerable laborers who are operating on behalf of corporate media, but with no protections or guarantees because they're freelance. And so I think it's important to just think about the larger narratives that this behavior tells about power structures, about race, and about the sort of celebrity system and the Hollywood industrial complex more broadly.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: Oh, absolutely. And um, and then in talking about um, continuing on that 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 idea of you know what the story tells us about race, um, you have quite a bit of um, of material regarding also um, black or African American celebrities, and that also seems to kind of be a through line and emerges in different chapters um, in the book, and. Um, there, and it's really about sort of the absence, I guess, of bl- Black celebrities um, in, the, in the magazines. Um, and you discussed this, like, in relation to the paparazzi taking, not taking their photos to reporters, reporting on them, and to even editors working in the, in the magazines. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just um, share something about this um, and about the implications of this erasure, um, of, of this work, this behind-the-scenes work that you look
0: at for um, Black celebrities. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, it is the exact right link between this question of these larger narratives about, about race, about representation. You know, Hollywood has always existed to tell the same dominant narrative of a nation that we see in most whitewash histories of the US, right? So Hollywood, the Hollywood narrative is always one that centers, you know, quote, unquote, normal, meaning white, cis, hetero family life, you know, Hortense Powdermaker, (laughs) the, the anthropologist who wrote the 1950s book, Hollywood The Dream Factory, she wrote this very thing that Hollywood was concerned with showing what was normal. And so that's what they want in movies, on TV, in the pages of the magazines. So, you know, that f- for example, the non-white laborers I'm focusing on are largely invisible and disposable, and that Hollywood doesn't even acknowledge them as viable and necessary parts of the industry is is very clear. And and this this connects to, you know, the the lack of a representation of, of black celebrities in in the media. I mean, if you think about aside from Halle Berry and Kanye West's occasional outburst with with paparazzi, you don't really see an issue between black celebrities and paparazzi because they're not they're not sort of the focus in the same way. And so these implications about this larger structural institutional reality really become illuminated. Um, it also shows that. The paparazzi, you know, I have whole sections talking about the, their own critique of this because what we see is that the marginalized, those who were marginalized in different ways within this industry are also sort of interrogating their own position in reproducing this really white normative representation of reality that isn't their own. Um, and, you know, Hollywood has been the purveyor and promoter of racism and stereotypes historically and contemporarily. Right. So I, I mentioned, you know, we all know about Oscar So White, but I'm trying to point out these varying levels of erasure um, and disposability throughout the Hollywood industrial complex. And so while I focus on, on paparazzi, the, the discussion that paparazzi and these other minoritized figures have about black celebrities, you know, I, I think, again, it just shows that they understand themselves in relationship to these politics as well. They care about these politics as well. And if we're in this moment in the country where we're interrogating these structural hierarchies, we have to take Hollywood to task as well. We can't leave the way that the Hollywood industrial complex really impacts. You know, I, I said that it, I use that term also to, to represent its long relationship to the state. Hollywood is not exempt from all of the same kind of major structural, institutional, problems and hierarchies and, and racisms, um, discrimination that, that we're talking about on an institutional level across the entire country. And so, um, you know, Hollywood's been doing this since the beginning. We can go back to Birth of the Nation, Tony the Greaser, The Yellow Menace, The Sheik, The Mask of Fu Manchu, all of these historical films that show Hollywood is racist at its core and always has been. And things change, but they don't change that much. And I think that my book really shows that. Mm
3: -hmm. No, it definitely shows that. And I was really struck when, um, when the paparazzi were talking about, um, you know, not either not, not taking or taking pictures of black celebrities. And that made me think about how, like you just said, black celebrities don't have the paparazzi following them, which then just to make that connection to what you, what you said, they can't then perform that, um, that celebrity, they can't perform that status and that visibility that white celebrities can um, because they don't have the, you know, the the paparazzi following them in the same way. Um, so it just it just pointed to me as another area of inequality that was so um, so glaring. In, in yeah, it.
0: and and again, if we think about these larger narratives that Hollywood has always been telling, it's this narrative of white victimhood and especially white women's victimhood. So if we look at the way that paparazzi are then these men of color. Who are strategically positioned to be photographing mostly white women, who are them like then become these figures who are like, oh, these gangs of large aggressive men are you know bothering me, when, you know that's like I said, aside from Halle Berry, there there really aren't complaints coming from black celebrities, and it does impact that that empathy, this idea of celebrity empathy that then the public has like, oh, you know, poor Jennifer Garner, poor Kristen Bell, poor whoever it is. Um, These are the narratives we've been receiving. You know, all those films that I just mentioned, those early Hollywood films, all center around white women's victimhood and them being the subject of desire and the subject of, you know, attack from men of color. So this dynamic is, it's classic Hollywood. And yes, the... The celebrities of color, and specifically black celebrities, are are left out of the possibility of this narrative. Mm-hmm.
3: And so, I wanted to um, shift, I guess, to the look of the book and um, the images that you have in the book because the book is is absolutely beautiful, and I know that uh, people would will. It's a wonderful read and then also beautiful to look at. Um, And so because you have images um, from magazines and from the various stories that you reference um, that the paparazzi and reporters are creating. um, And so I thought it was interesting how you have photos that the paparazzi produced themselves, um, in the book. And, um, and then you were also on site with them, um, on occasion and they taught you how to shoot. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could talk about like what you learned about the paparazzi from their own photos, um, and from their, about their own shooting practices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the first thing is that the paparazzi are, are highly, highly skilled and perhaps trained Informally, because many of them train on the job, but they know what they're doing with very, very, very high tech camera equipment. And, you know, I have a background in photography as well, and I could not keep up with them at all in terms of how quickly their technology was changing, their practices. How quickly they needed to change their settings to get everything right, and then run from taking the picture to uploading the picture, you know, so that it get gets wired to their um, their photo agency who's selling on their behalf. Um, I mean, they're just you know highly professional, highly skilled labor, and I think that our the conceptualization of of you know just the kind of questions around what skill and skill level mean and how that is so is so racialized. That there, there can't even be a conceptualization of, of this sort of dominant, you know, a dominant demographic of, of Latinx laborers being conceptualized as highly skilled. That that is something that seems um, almost impossible to convince people of. But they, they really um, are, are quite incredible at, at their work. And I, you know, feel very comfortable calling them artists because they take beautiful photos. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I said that there's these degrees of relationships with people, but I have seen, you know, I know that the photographers, for example, uh, collected all of these beautiful images that they had of Gwen Stefani and her children, and they made a photo book for her and went and gave it to her because they, they're taking these gorgeous photos. I did an interview with, um, Selma Blair at an event some years ago, and I, you know, she, she's known for having a, a good relationship with the paparazzi and, you know, Gallo, one of the people who I worked with, um, the, uh, as a paparazzo, he, you know, takes her flowers on her birthday and, you know, they have a great relationship. And she said in the interview with me, you know, <laughs> they're basically taking these incredible photos that I'll have of, of me and my children for the rest of my life. And so they really are artists in, in this, in this very clear way. In terms of them taking the images of themselves and and kind of conceptualizing their own work, I think it speaks to these same themes, right? Like I have the images where Gallo's taken photos of them um, and Photoshopped them in particular ways. Like one of the images that's really striking to me in the book is the one where Gallo has the image of one of the paparazzos um, in the pumpkin patch where they had gone to shoot, I believe it was Britney Spears and her children Mm-hmm. at a pumpkin patch, and they all got kicked out of the pumpkin patch. And so one of, the paparazz- uh, one of the paparazzos went into the field, got a wheelbarrow, and started pushing the wheelbarrow to try to blend in as if he were, you know, supposed to be there. And so Gallo conceptualized him as trying to blend in as a field worker, and so he photoshopped these other field workers behind him in the pumpkin patch. And so I think that the imagery of them themselves – it it highlights these contradictions on the one hand you have images like that where gallo is creating this commentary around the fact that they are viewed in the same kind of sort of unskilled day labor even though they're sort of you know we think about it in the in pandemic terms They're essential laborers, right? Like essential workers, farm workers are essential workers. Paparazzi, in terms of the Hollywood Industrial Complex, are are essential workers. They haven't stopped working, um, even if the nature of their work has changed. So on the one hand, there's this sort of um, reflection on the the degrees of invisibility and the degrees of sort of questioning of their skill level. And then on the other hand, you have these images of them, um, like the one of Gallo in a tree, that another photographer took of them where you see the kind of risks that they take, where you see the intensity of their equipment. And you can only imagine like to be able to shoot with that equipment, you have to have a lot of knowledge <laughs> around the workings of this kind of machinery. So, um, so I think that this, get, that getting the view of themselves also highlights a lot of the contradictions that I'm outlining. hmm
3: and so, um, regarding your research methods, um, you really—the book is just um, really—it shows us your um, participant observation. It's very ethnographic. Um, we hear the voices of your um, interlocutors, and you know, we see them in photos. Um, and so, so I was wondering about sort of your role as an ethnographer who has been a reporter, um, because you really have this benefit of you know having sort of done similar kind of work, um, as a reporter. And now, um, you know, with, with obviously doing a research study is different as an ethnographer. Um, and so I was just wondering if you noticed, um, any differences in interviewing, um, as a reporter and as an ethnographer. And then I also, I I have this question about interviewing, um, media producers who also do interviews for a living. Um, and I, I run in this, into this myself because I do research with media producers, with journalists. And I always think it's really interesting interviewing them because rarely are they on the other side, but then also they, they have this experience as well. Um, and so this, this is a general question, I guess, about, about your research, anything you would want to share about just the challenges and opportunities of, um, you know, undertaking this research as a reporter yourself, but then also as an ethnographer.
0: Yeah. Um, these are great questions. I think, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of different layers here as well. Um, You know, obviously, I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't have done the research if I hadn't been a reporter, because that was really what brought me to it. So I really had to have that experience. I know that the reporters I talked with um, and worked with and have this long history with, they wouldn't have even been willing to sit down with me um, or have me join them at events or red carpets and, and things like that if we didn't have the history that we had. So I very much view my experience as a reporter as, as an asset on multiple levels, both in terms of my interviewing experience and, and comfortability with that. um, And, and also with the, the question of access, which, you know, is so important and has been outlined in in other works on, on Hollywood and sort of um, larger, more kind of private corporate structures. Um, In terms of (laughs) the, uh, interviewing as a reporter versus interviewing as an ethnographer, yeah, I mean, I think this is it's it's it, it it kind of translates across various things. Like when I decided to do this work, when I decided to enter, The PhD program in anthropology, a lot of my reporter colleagues and editor colleagues were baffled. They were just like, Why would you do that? Like, we're writing books. We're, you know, a lot of the reporters also write books, um, and these books get published really quickly. And so the idea of undertaking, you know, years and years of study to then do research that they felt like I could have done without you know, the degree and then to take years and years and years to do, um, an academic book while, you know, in between the time that I started my PhD program and, and then I published this book, so many of the reporters who I worked with published several books, right? So they, so their sort of understanding of like how and why I chose to do this, um, was, was complicated, but you know, I talked to, I, I explained to my colleagues at, at the magazines that I really wanted to do more in-depth work um, that I didn't feel I could do as a reporter. And so I think once I started kind of getting into the stories, um, I think once they started to sit down with me and really talk about their experiences, that they understood the value of the sort of longer term in-depth ethnographic approach And, you know, I know this is kind of a common um, story, but many of the reporters started to, you know, tell me that they felt like it was therapy sessions that they hadn't even realized a lot of the sort of traumas um, and complicated experiences they had had on the job. And so it was my asking about it in these particular ways, in these sort of more, you know like longer term ethnographic interviews that really sort of facilitated their ability to begin to conceptualize their own work and experiences as as really important cultural data in ways that they they didn't think was possible so i think that you know of course there were challenges in taking on the research because i had this close relationship to the material and i think that you can see that in the book like My relationship to the reporters is different than my relationship to the photographers and it comes out in the text and there's nothing I could really do about that, right? Because I wasn't a paparazzo for years and I was a reporter for years and my relationship to the paparazzi was more, you know, kind of a dynamic where they felt like they were taking me under their wing as like a little sister. Whereas with the reporters, it was more of a dynamic of, you know, we were colleagues, um, and friends and, and had, had a longer, deeper history and more shared experiences in certain ways. Um, So, you know, it was complicated in different ways, but I think ultimately what I learned was that I really, you know, this, this was the right project for me to do. And I think all of my colleagues, you know, from across the Hollywood um, industrial complex really see that now because Their understanding that, wow, we didn't even know kind of where we fit into this picture. We didn't even understand the dynamics that we were a part of or that we were perpetuating. And so I think the the book now serves to be this, you know, on the one hand, academic work, and on the other hand, um, offers really kind of critical but practical reflections for the industry that I worked in for so many years and that my friends and colleagues continue to, um, to work in and, and to build. And so, you know, my hope is that these different insights and and stories and analyses can actually contribute to, to some new sort of perspectives on, on Hollywood as a whole.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so <clears throat> important to, um, you, you piece together this, uh, this, uh, story, um, that really, um, I think illuminates, again, like you said, the different roles that people have um, in perpetuating these, uh, you know, these problems of, of Hollywood. Um, And, uh, and I wanted to, to segue, I guess, into the final question about the book, which was um, what you would hope for the reader uh, to take away from the book. And one of the things that I took away from the book was about, and this was sort of toward the end of the book, you, you, you write that the practice of uh, humanizing celebrities, um, can, can be also dehumanizing for others and for, for those who are producing it. Um, and so I, that was one of, one of my takeaways. But the book really also touches on such contemporary um, issues of, um, of immigration, of race and racism, and of like gender politics, and really the also current contemporary political moment. So I was just wondering what would be um, some of the takeaways that you hope that someone would, would take from the book?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the book, I really hope that there are these very practical uses, you know, from from the discussions around fake news and the relationship to, you know, the to to Donald Trump um and sort of his abuses of power within the celebrity world um prior to becoming president. Um I hope that there, there's room for readers to take the tools there to sort of understand um, the, the structures that have, have created and perpetuated the possibility for these kinds of abuses of power. Um, and, you know, we're in a moment in this country where we're interrogating structural hierarchies and inequalities. And I think that we just don't always think about the way that these same foundational structures That we see in places, you know, like government, law enforcement, um, you know, other kinds of institutional spaces are, you know, impact Hollywood deeply and that, you know, it's this major institution that's subject to the same kind of power dynamics and that that's just not the picture we get when we look at beautiful glossy magazines like People and Us Weekly or when we see our favorite stars in different settings or their social media. And so I really, I want to help people get the fuller picture. And the goal isn't to make people like hate the magazines or hate Hollywood. Um, the goal is that you don't look at these magazines or Hollywood the same again. So I'm, I'm really thinking about trying to just shift the conversation and have it, you know, I think for a lot of people, Hollywood and specifically the magazines are an escape. Even for a lot of academic friends I have, they'll be like, oh yeah, I would love to have my like People Magazine or my Us Weekly. That's like my escape. But if we think about this media as escapist media, which is what it was intended to be, you know, I write about that in the book that People Magazine started, you know, as the Vietnam War was ending in this moment when they thought, oh, we can you know, we should give people something kind of fluffy to consume, and these other magazines that you know came about in the early two thousands came out in the wake of nine eleven and and this kind of desire to create more escapism. And I and I want to problematize that that if we think about this material, if we think about Hollywood and celebrity and celebrity media as escape, then we're missing the whole point because it's not an escape. It's actually the epitome of these very you know, structural hierarchies and power dynamics and, and, you know, abuses of power that we're critiquing right now. So to think of it as an escape is to miss the whole entire picture. And I'm hoping that the book helps people sort of understand this picture more clearly.
3: Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so to, to end the interview, we've taken up a lot of your time now. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, what either current or next projects you have, um, you have going on. I know the book just came out and so this is the, you know, new books network, but normally, um, people have, you know, various projects that they're, that they're working on. So I wanted to ask about, um, any current or, or future projects that you see coming on the horizon. For yourself.
0: Yeah. So you know, developing from this book, um, I'm planning to continue doing work on the um, anti-paparazzi legislation that I kind of touch on in the book, um, specifically around you know um, the chapter where I focus on Chris's death. But I'm planning to do some more in-depth research um, on the the legislation, sort of how it gets. Um, how it gets crafted, who's behind it, you know, the different lobbying groups, and sort of um, illuminating, again, these these sort of structural powers and, and really specific kind of targeting of Latino labor that happens through this anti-paparazzi legislation. So that's one thing. Um, I'm also working on... Um, a more in-depth exploration of, of what I call reality star politics that I talk about a little bit in relationship to you know, Donald Trump in the book um, and sort of how he's used his savvy around celebrity media and the political realm. And I think that there's a broader story there around how politics are shifting because of his presidency. Um, so I'm working on that. And then finally, you know, I I did research in the Caribbean, specifically Cuba and Puerto Rico, prior to this research and and even some side projects while I was doing this research for this book. And so I'm planning to um to do some some work on um you know different forms of of media and political culture um in, in Cuba and Puerto Rico again as well.
3: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you have your handful and that's really exciting. Uh, we'll we'll look out for that. So so I've been talking to Vanessa Diaz about her book, Manufacturing Celebrity, Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood. Thank you for writing this book and for sharing it with us, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having
0: me. It's been great.